Good evening, hushlings, and welcome. I present your preceptors to the underbelly of the void, the whispers of conjecture, and the known of the unknown. Thus begins the conclave of the Hush Hush Society. The Ambassador Hotel, Los Angeles, on June 5th, 1968, headquarters for the Robert Kennedy for President campaign. Victorious in the crucial California primary, Kennedy addresses an enthusiastic crowd in one of the hotel's ballrooms. My thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. As he turned and went by me, he turned to the right toward the kitchen. When he did come through, uh, lots of television cameras and stuff, and we were going into a press conference. And he was shaking hands with the, uh, the two busboys talking with him, and it was at that time that the, the shots started. Major D reported that Senator Kennedy had been shot. He's been shot? That's right. I just heard this crackling noise and, and uh, was shaking violently, and, and I thought I was being electrocuted. That was my impression. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Is that possible? I saw him laying on the ground. I knew that he wasn't going to live. Everybody else, just please stay back. Just a doctor, come right here. 25 and a half hours after he is shot, at 1.44 a.m. on June 6, Robert Kennedy dies. Greetings, Hushlings. Welcome back to the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour, where we journey into the world of conspiratorial mysteries and dark truths. I'm Declassified Dave. And I'm Mystery Mike. And as always, we're joined by our junior campaign manager, Slick Frank Sanders. Hey guys, how we doing? I like campaigning. You wanna campaign? <laughs> Real pain for my campaign friends. You should run for president. Oh, slick Frank. I'm nowhere near old or orange enough. Just see him up at a podium, two peace signs. I could see Just... it uh what, twenty thirty two. Yeah. I'd get assassinated for sure. <laughs> Nah, you'd be a great president. Yeah, I think so. Young, I'm a real good Muppet puppet. Just inject some youth into the position. Can you imagine just seeing his nameplate at like a UN meeting? Slick Frock Sanders, <laughs> President Slick Frock president Sanders, Slick United Frank States. Sanders. Better yet, my real name, and everybody's looking back and forth like, what Slavic country is this dude from? <laughs> He's infiltrated us. <laughs> And he's always wearing just a suit that's a little too big. President from where? <laughs> On the evening of June 5th, 1968, after securing a triumph in the California primary, Robert Kennedy was met with a tragic fate when he was shot by Sirhan Sirhan, a 24-year-old Palestinian. The motive for this assassination was speculated to be a response to Kennedy's endorsement of Israel following the Six-Day War in 1967. After enduring his injuries, Kennedy succumbed to his wounds approximately 25 hours later. Sirhan was apprehended, put on trial, and ultimately found guilty for the crime. Nevertheless, much like the assassination of his brother, John F. Kennedy, Robert's tragic demise continues to give rise to a plethora of conspiracy theories. In this episode, we will explore the career, assassination, and mystery surrounding RFK. But before we take a shortcut through the kitchen, you'll see what I'm talking about. 
Just want to remind you, social medias, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can always reach out to us at our email contact at hushhushsociety.com. And you can also leave us a review, which we appreciate as always. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever else you can leave them, even on our website, hushhushsociety.com. That's right. We just want to remind you, hushhushsociety.com is the official one-stop shop for Hush Hush Society. You can listen to all our episodes like this one. You can check out our blog, merchandise, all the links that Mike just said, and direct links to our video portion on Rockfin. And on our Rockfin page, it's nice and simple. You just look it up hushhushsociety.com if you want to put it into the url bar into your little search bar just rockfin.com slash hushhushsociety you will find us and there you'll find all of our video debriefings as well as our declassified discussions you can actually see the guests that we're talking to it's it's quite a fun time just go over there hit the subscribe button hit the notification bell watch us real time 4k hd HDMI to your TV while you're eating dinner. Watch the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. We should be on 2B TV. I'm going to put us on all the porn sites. <laughs> uh, the boys will have us on Pornhub. It's just an OnlyFans, but it's just our Rockfin videos. <laughs> Dude, if people can upload gaming content to like Pornhub, I don't see why we're not on there. Maybe, maybe we'll be the expansion that they're looking for. All right, boys, let's get into this RFK assassination because it gets pretty hairy and there's a lot of information. So follow along, Hushlings. We're going to do a brief little synopsis of RFK's career, which led up to his assassination. It's definitely some background that you should know about him moving forward. Robert Francis Kennedy, or RFK, or a.k.a. Bobby as people called him, was born on November 20th of 1925 in Brookline, Massachusetts. He was the seventh child of Joseph P. Kennedy Sr., a businessman and politician, and Rose Fitzgerald Kennedy, a philanthropist and socialite. Raised in a large Irish-American family, Robert's upbringing instilled in him a strong sense of heritage and community. Say heritage with a Massachusetts accent. Heritage. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, emphasize the Boston. <laughs> Robert's upbringing instilled in him a strong sense of heritage and community. At 17, just before turning 18 in 1943, Robert enlisted in the United States Naval Reserve. He joined the V-12 Navy College Training Program at Harvard College in March of 1944. After completing his Navy service, Robert entered Harvard as a junior in September of 1946, and during this time he actively supported his brother John's campaign for a vacant U.S. House seat, eventually joining the campaign full-time. In 1948, Robert graduated from Harvard with a bachelor's degree in political science. He then enrolled at the University of Virginia Law School, but had a momentary interruption in his studies when he married Ethel Skakel on June 17, 1950 in Greenwich, Connecticut. In 1955, he achieved a significant milestone by being admitted to practice before the United States Supreme Court, enhancing his reputation as a skilled attorney. 
From 1957 to 1959, he gained recognition as the chief counsel of the McClellan Committee in the U.S. Senate. Under Chairman John L. McClellan's leadership, Kennedy had substantial authority scheduling testimonies, determining areas of investigation, and questioning witnesses. One notable moment during Kennedy's tenure was his confrontation with Jimmy Hoffa, the president of the Teamsters Union, during a testimony. Kennedy believed Hoffa had collaborated with mobsters, extorted money, and misused funds of the union's pension accounts. While the committee's work resulted in few criminal prosecutions, it received significant media attention, with magazines like Life, Look, and the Saturday Evening Post featuring the Kennedy brothers and their efforts to expose the corruption. The Jimmy Hoffa incident we briefly spoke about in the JFK episode, mm-hmm. and as we were talking about why JFK might have been assassinated or who even might have been assassinated by, we mentioned the mafia and even the possibility of it being some sort of accidental assassination where Hoffa or the powers that be in the mafioso said, take Kennedy out really meaning Robert Kennedy because he was going after the mafia really hard in his Supreme Court position. So it's just to lay down, like I said, some framework of how infamous he was becoming as he was rising into his political career. I mean, with all the stuff with the the mob, that's not too out of the ordinary for the area that they're from. It's very mob heavy. We all know that especially Boston and New York are and Philly are very mob heavy, so you can get involved, especially within politics there. Another part of that is that when RFK joined McClellan's team, McClellan was hard on communism. The whole direction of what they were trying to prosecute was communism. It was like the big McCarthyism, Red Scare type of stuff. And when he joined over there, he kind of stepped away from that and pulled everybody away from that to focus on organized crime. It was a real big move for him. Kennedy formed the Get Hoffa squad of prosecutors and investigators to tackle his activities. The intense animosity between Kennedy and Hoffa led to convictions and prison sentences for Hoffa, who served a combined 13-year term starting in 1967. As Attorney General, Bobby waged a relentless campaign against organized crime and the mafia, as I just mentioned, despite disagreements with FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. Convictions against organized crime figures soared by 800% under Kennedy's leadership. He refocused Hoover's attention from communism to battling organized crime, reshaping the FBI's priorities. Interesting that there was... uh... A little bit of friction there between the feds and uh, Robert with going after the mob. You'll see a little bit as we keep going that he had a lot of friction with a lot of different law organizations. They weren't too fond of that, huh? No. Kennedy's dedication to uncovering corruption left a lasting impression and increased his public profile. The media often referred to the Kennedy brothers as two boyish young men from Boston who had become notable figures in Washington. In addition to his legal pursuits, Robert found time to author several books. One notable work, 
the enemy within, examined organized crime's impact on American society. Another influential book that he wrote, 13 Days, provided a first-hand account of the Cuban Missile Crisis, offering unique insights into this critical moment of the Cold War. As one of President Kennedy's closest advisors, Robert played a crucial role during the Berlin Crisis of 1961. Through a private connection with a Soviet spy, Georgi Bolshakov, he facilitated important diplomatic communications between the American and Soviet governments. This connection proved instrumental in organizing the Vienna Summit in June of 1961 and diffusing a tense tank standoff at Berlin's Checkpoint Charlie in October. At President Kennedy's direction, Robert used federal agencies to influence the U.S. Steel's price increase decision, sparking controversy over allegations of coercion and civil liberties violations. These guys were busy. Yeah. So as you can see, we're shaping up to this guy not making too many friends and at the same time kind of garnering a lot of power as he's coming up. Almost as much as his brother, really. Really aggressive with his moves. He's not even playing chess. This dude's like a full 400-yard sprint, and he is moving all the blocks at once and pissing a lot of people off Mm -hmm. during that time from the seams of it. Yep. After JFK's assassination, there was rumor about Robert as a potential candidate for the 1964 presidential election. Amid speculation, he officially announced his presidential candidacy on March 16th of 1968, in the same room where his brother had declared his candidacy years earlier. Robert's presidential campaign centered around key policy areas such as racial and economic justice, non-aggression in foreign policy, power decentralization, and social change. He aimed to tackle inequality and discrimination while advocating for inclusivity and equality. Kennedy recognized the significance of engaging with the younger generation as the driving force behind a revitalized America. Robert Kennedy's campaign evoked strong reactions, both positive and negative. He challenged the status quo and faced intense animosity, with some even expressing a desire for his assassination. Kennedy aimed to unite the nation around a vision of progress, continuing his brother's and President Johnson's initiatives in civil rights, poverty alleviation, and social welfare. One thing I've always thought, if Kennedy never got shot, mm-hmm. how different of a country this might have been? Oh, we'd, we'd probably already all be nuked to fuck. You think? Like sometimes, yeah, sometimes you think the grass would be greener on the other side, but... I mean, I think the odds of it going the opposite direction are just as high, unfortunately. You never know. You never know. He might have had a kid that would grow up to be like some sort of supervillain. Marilyn Monroe is the mother. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. It's just something I've always thought about. I've always thought like on the positive end, I guess this is a weird question. It's kind of off the tangent, but would there be as much of an industrial military complex as there was because Kennedy was very, and even his brother, like what we're talking about, Robert is very heavy in the people like a politician, a real politician other than a businessman, but he was still about the people, civil rights, social justice, just, you know, equality. 
I guess they're preaching it right now, but it's it's not real. Not the way that the Kennedys meant it. Yeah. Realistically. But honestly, it probably would have been a massive line of Kennedy presidents afterwards. Because JFK probably would have ended his term. By then, Robert probably would have jumped in and probably would have immediately been the front runner and taken it. And then years down the road, JFK Jr. or any of the other Kennedys. After Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination on April 4th in 1968, Robert Kennedy delivered a powerful speech in Indianapolis calling for unity and preventing riots in the city. He addressed his brother's assassination as well emphasizing the need to end violence. Kennedy's speech had a significant impact, contrasting with the unrest in other cities. Where was our Kennedy in 2020? That's kind of an important point right there. And it's said that after this speech, he went to the funeral, he went to other kind of events that were based around the assassination of King and spoke. And he was the only white politician to get like applause and be received by the black community. And I think that is just like another factor on top of this list of things that the CIA, the FBI, those in power just didn't want. They didn't want this guy who was definitely emotionally and psychologically connected with the poorer people that he connected with. I think that was a dangerous thing to them. And that's why I say a line of Kennedy presidents would have probably been in the books because that's how they connected. Yeah, then we wouldn't have had Mr. September. (laughs) All right, let's get into the assassination. This is where... We're about to go zero to 100 pretty quick. On June 4th, just two months after King's assassination, Robert won the primaries for both California and North Dakota. Some would say this is a major sign of his assured incumbency. Just after midnight on June 5th of 1968, Robert delivered a speech to his supporters at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, California. After his speech, he ventured through the hotel kitchen in a last-minute change by his guards, convinced it would serve as a shortcut to the press room. While traveling through the kitchen corridor, he turned to his left and extended his hand to greet Juan Romeo, a hotel busboy. It was at this moment that Sirhan Sirhan, a 24-year-old Palestinian, opened fire with a 22 caliber revolver. The senator was struck three times, while five others suffered wounds. In a remarkable display of bravery, George Plimpton, former decathlete Rafer Johnson, and former professional football player Rosie Greer sprang into action, overpowering Saran and bringing him to the ground following the senator's shooting. As the fatally wounded Kennedy lay in Romero's arms, Romero cradled his head and placed a rosary in his hand. Concerned for the well-being of those around him, Kennedy asked Romeo if everyone was okay. Robert then said to Romeo, quote, everything's going to be okay, end quote. Now, Romeo, is, wasn't he a busboy? Yeah. Okay. He was like a young kid, right? Like a 17, 19-year-old kid, right? There's a famous picture of him holding him after the shooting. How traumatic. <laughs> Just at work. After some time, medical personnel arrived and carefully lifted the senator onto a stretcher, prompting him to whisper his final words, Don't lift me. 
Soon after, Kennedy lost consciousness. He was transported to the nearby Central Receiving Hospital in Los Angeles, located less than two miles east of the Ambassador Hotel, before being transferred to the adjacent Good Samaritan Hospital just a city block away. Despite undergoing extensive neurosurgery to extract the bullet and bone fragments from his brain, Kennedy was pronounced dead at 1.44 a.m. on June 6th, approximately 26 hours after the shooting occurred. Of course, that is what the official report would say. The first discrepancy in this story would come from witnesses who placed Sirhan Sirhan in front of RFK and no closer than a foot away. According to ballistics and the gunpowder residue found on Kennedy, the kill shot came from a near point-blank range in the back of his skull. The supposed eight shots taken by the assassin were reconstructed by the scene investigator Dwayne Wolfer, the chief criminologist for the LAPD. Follow along as we lay them out. Eight shots, and there was a whole crowd. Like, he must have been like... Like, yeah, dual wielding. Like, yeah, some rootin' tootin' shit. Well, one shot entered Kennedy's head just behind the right ear around here. If that was point blank, that's crazy. Surprised he lasted 26 hours. Shots two and three hitting him in the shoulder and upper back. And one of those bullets would travel through his back and exit out his chest into a ceiling tile and become lost. Another magic bullet, guys. What is with the Kennedys and the magic bullets going like UFOs all over the That's place? That's not even the magic one. You'll see. Ooh. Shot four would travel through Kennedy's coat in an upward trajectory into the forehead of Paul Schrade, a labor union leader. Bullets five and six would hit journalist Ira Goldstein and William Wiesel. Erwin Stroll, a volunteer for Robert's campaign, would be hit in the leg with shot number seven. The eighth and final counted shot is in fact the most bizarre, as it would go through the ceiling tile, hit the plaster ceiling above, ricochet off, exiting another tile, and hit Democratic activist Elizabeth Evans in the head. The issue with this story is in the official medical report. The trajectory of this bullet is in an upward motion. Not only did the trajectory of the bullet not match the story, but the hollow point round maintained three quarters of its total weight after hitting multiple hard surfaces, something that would otherwise cause damage or mushrooming of the round. Other people questioning it would say, oh, well, how did it end up in her head and how did it make all these bounces? And some people would even say that after it bounced down, it would hit the floor and then ricochet again into her head, which is why it had an upward trajectory. Did she die? Oh, if she got shot in the head with a hollow. Yeah, she's dead. Well, I mean, if it's a quadruple ricochet. That's exactly the point is that. It's a 22 round. Let's keep that in mind. So it's not like uh -huh. it's a heavy duty round. And it hit four different surfaces. Yeah. And somehow still had velocity and the ability to go through this woman's skull. It's a lot of ricochet for a small bullet. And as we said, it retained most of its total weight, which is damn near impossible if you're hitting all these surfaces. It would have fractured. Something would have happened to that bullet. 22 rounds, especially at, at a hollow point, hitting multiple, hitting one surface, that round is kaput. It's supposed you know? to, yeah. Now, keep in mind, 
all of these shots were taken from behind RFK. And all witnesses placed Saran Saran in front of him. Yeah, how did he get the one behind him? Mm. How did he get all the ones behind him? And all the rounds that were found in him were 22. Can a 22 round coming from a revolver cause even even from a couple feet away go through a chest and blow a hole through it? Yeah. Or blow a hole, maybe, maybe not, but it can go through you. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Well, I don't know if it blow a hole. But also think about it this way. That chest shot was an exit wound. Yeah. So it entered through his back and exited out his chest. Yeah. That's from behind him. So it would have to have been close. I mean, point blank, I could see that. Yeah. But again, all witnesses place Saran Saran in front of him. Let's go to the tape. Let's go to the tape. The bullet that hit Paul Schrade often comes into question. As we said before, it traveled in an upwards trajectory, first passing through Kennedy's jacket from behind. Schrade, who survived, would become a voice against the official story, believing instead in multiple shooters. He's quoted as saying, quote, The only way I could have been hit by that bullet is if I were nine feet tall and had my head on Kennedy's shoulder. To make the shot even more impossible, Paul Schrade was standing behind Kennedy as they were walking. Paul Schrade was shot in the head in an upward trajectory, standing behind Kennedy. One of those rounds possibly could have been shot from Zoran because it was coming from the front. But again, you have bullets coming from both sides now. So you have a a front shooter, a shooter that's in front of this entourage, and then you have a shooter from behind. I'd really like to see a like a 3D. Yeah, I tried to look for like a reenactment of the shooting, but there's so many people with so many different conflicting stories. And the fact that the criminologists layout of what the shots were and where they were taken and all this other stuff and the directions that they were taken from, none of it makes sense. So it's kind of hard to nail down exactly what happened and where shooters were and where bullets were coming from and who was getting shot from where it's, it was a big clusterfuck. Are we absolutely ruling out that Saran Saran wasn't some sort of Neo or John Wick character in this event? And shooting everybody twice just to make sure. Yeah. (laughs) Did Kennedy kill his dog? Probably. Probably, yeah. Following the shooting, multiple reports, publications, and photos would be released showing two bullet holes and a wooden door divider on the west end of the kitchen. There was even one photo published by the Associated Press of an officer inspecting said holes, which were circled and numbered. How could there be additional bullet holes if all eight of the rounds that could possibly be discharged from Saran's weapon be accounted for? Mystery bullet holes? Mystery? Magic bullet holes. They disappear. The LAPD then went on to deny the existence of any bullet holes in wooden dividers. See, it's motherfuckers. Unsurprisingly, the LAPD failed to explain their decision, then to collect and submit the two wooden pieces from the dividers as evidence, despite the alleged absence of any bullet holes. Unfortunately, any hope of examining the evidence disappeared when the wood along with the ceiling containing confirmed bullet holes was destroyed. 
It's an LAPD thing to do. Damn. It's a Kennedy assassination thing to do yeah. for evidence yeah, to just walk away, grow legs, and disappear. We destroyed it. Oops. Oh no, where'd your brain go? We lost it. <laughs> Allegedly, the LAPD claimed they lacked storage space for it. Additionally, the LAPD confirmed having conducted x-rays of the door frames before their destruction. But both of the records and the x-rays themselves have mysteriously vanished, just like NASA's technology. What is with these guys? Like, when are we going to stop believing the bullshit of, oh, yeah, we lost it? The interesting part about this is that the LAPD denied that there were bullet holes within this wooden divider, which becomes a huge part of the questioning of this entire assassination. Because if you're counting along with us, eight rounds were accounted for, which is the entire unloaded chamber of Saran's weapon, which only held eight rounds. Now we have these additional two rounds that are found within the wall of this wooden divider. And then, like I said, LAPD denies that it ever existed, but then in the report says, yeah, we had it put into evidence, but why would you put it into evidence if it didn't have bullet holes? What would be the point? And then, of course, you go and destroy it. And then you took x-rays of it. Why would you take x-rays of it if they didn't have bullets in it? So you see what's going on. I mean, they put pictures of the bullet holes in the newspaper. Yeah, it was pretty widespread. There were some widespread pictures. Other photos would be taken of the wood. And you'll see as we move forward that this definitely existed. It was a it was a real thing. They didn't have the space for it, Mike. Their storage unit was too small. Famed for prosecuting Charles Manson, Vincent Bugliosi assisted Paul Schrade in a civil lawsuit aimed at uncovering LAPD files related to the RFK case. Bugliosi managed to locate the two LAPD officers who pointed out the supposed bullet holes in the pantry door as captured in the Associated Press photo. According to a sworn affidavit by LAPD Sergeant Robert Rossi, on November 15th of 1975, he mentioned that while searching for evidence during the evening, someone discovered what appeared to be a bullet about a foot and a half from the bottom of the floor within a door frame. He personally witnessed what he believed to be a bullet in that same location. The other LAPD officer involved was Sergeant Charles Wright, who in a phone conversation with Bugliosi on November 16th of 1975, stated that he was certain he had seen a bullet hole. He expressed his certainty saying, quote, There is no pretty sure about it. It was definitely removed from the hole, but I don't know who did it, end quote. Bugliosi arranged a follow-up interview with Wright, but during their conversation, Wright informed him that he had been instructed by Deputy City Attorney Larry Nagan not to provide a statement. Now, why? Why, Larry? Why? Why can't you provide a statement? Interesting. It's really peculiar. On December 1st, 1975, Bugliosi obtained a statement from Angelo DePero, the maitre d' of the Ambassador Hotel at the time of the assassination. DePero revealed that after the shooting took place, he noticed a small caliber bullet embedded about a quarter of an inch into the wood on the center divider between the two swinging doors. DePero confidently stated, quote, I am quite familiar with guns and bullets. 
having been in the infantry for three and a half years. There is no question in my mind that this was a bullet and not a nail or any other object, end quote. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. In a sworn affidavit dated December 12th of 1975, Martin Petruski, a waiter at the Ambassador Hotel, reported that during a crime scene reconstruction, one of the officers pointed to two circular holes on the center divider of the swinging doors. The officer informed them that two bullets were extracted from those holes in the center divider. Petruski emphasized, quote, I am absolutely sure that the police stated that two bullets were removed from these holes. So as you can see, this played a major role. As we were talking about, eight rounds spent. Why do these extra two exist if Sirhan was the only one in the room shooting? And they were all 22s that were extracted, allegedly. They get into that a little further uh, down the line, but yes, they were all 22s. And to kind of put it into perspective, if you're looking at the way that the entourage was moving, RFK is moving straight ahead. This divider would have been straight and to the left of RFK. So roughly 20 feet ahead of him and to the left would have been this divider that they're speaking of. That would mean a bullet would have to come from behind. Definitely. One thing I read about RFK real quick too was these two magic bullets that were there out of eight rounds, there was 10 found. Weren't these non-hollow points, the two that they allegedly had found too, that they were a little bit different? They were a different round than the one from Sirhan's gun? They were hollow points just like the the other 22s, but you'll see as we get into it, there were differences. The differences are significant. All right. But significant enough to where, say, you couldn't load eight rounds of 122 and then two more rounds of whatever this other ammo is into one gun? Not in the time frame that this was taking place. It's not like he fired off eight rounds and nobody did anything about it and he just stood there and reloaded twice, two more rounds, and then shot two more times before anything anything happened. Because this was a revolver, correct? Yeah, this was a revolver on top of the fact that there were guards there. And as we mentioned, three people did jump on Saran. There were other waiters in the kitchen. There were other people in the kitchen, workers. There were other security in the kitchen. It was very crowded in there. And that would have had to happen in a split second, literally like eight rounds shot off. And then he would have had to pop out the chamber and load two more and then shoot two more. And on top of it all, he would have had to load two more, get behind RFK and then shoot two more. I see what you're getting at, but I'm thinking Saran, obviously Patsy, right? He's the guy that did it. He had an eight round revolver, but that doesn't seem to be the case the way that this is all panning out. Now, if his revolver was registered and legal, and that's the only handgun that he owned, they would have to say he used this eight-round, eight-chambered revolver. But the actual shooter, I'm not, I, I don't know if I'm leaning towards multiple shooters or if it was just one dude with, you know, a semi-automatic pistol that had 10 or 12 rounds, you know? Uh, no, because no. you also have to keep in mind that after the shooting, Saran was captured. He didn't escape. 
Yeah, they got yeah. the gun. So they have the weapon that he used to fire. There is no doubt about it that Saran fired shots. He definitely unloaded that gun. He fired all eight rounds. Or, to what Frank's saying, that's the weapon they showed you, and he had a modified 10-chamber, 12-chamber revolver. Again, you also have to look at it this way. There are rounds that are being shot from in front and behind. I thought they were all from behind. No, no. Because Paul Schrade was shot in the forehead. He ended up living, but he was shot in the head, and he was standing behind RFK. So there's shots coming in front of him and from behind him. I see. And also keep in mind, Saran is in front of him. He's in front of him, and all of these shots are coming from behind him. In the crime scene reconstruction, where the criminologist said, okay, these rounds, this is how the rounds were shot. It's proven that obviously there was a shot from behind RFK's ear, so that had to take place behind. There was a gunpowder residue that was found on his back from the back shot through the chest, so that had to be shot from behind him also. So it's a guarantee that two things are certain in this. Saran was in front of him firing, and he was also shot from behind. Automatically, if you took everything else out of it, there are definitely two shooters involved in this. <laughs> but again, that brings into question the entire reconstruction of the shooting. Is the official report of the shooting of the gunpowder residue of everything false? Is it wrong? Is the the way that he was shot wrong? Is it all? But either way, the kill shot definitely came from behind his right ear. Again, two shooters. It's, it's, it's squirrely. It's squirrely as hell, I'll tell you. Hushlings, we will return after these brief messages. Good evening, Hushternauts. The boys embark on a spacefaring mission. There is a theory that an extraterrestrial spacecraft is in near polar orbit around the Earth for nearly 13,000 years. The origin of the legend dates all the way back to Nikola Tesla in 1899, as well as other claims of the anomaly being observed via telescope. Reported by the United States Air Force in 1954 and hypothesized it was fragments of earthly technology in the 60s, 70s, and wasn't fully photographed until STS-88 in 1998. And that NASA is concealing its existence and origin. Are we being observed, watched, experimented on? Find out on our 77th mission. On Stardate July 3rd, 2023, the Black Knight Satellite. Welcome back to the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. On September 18th of 1970, Judge Robert A. Wink issued an order for Sir Han's gun to be test-fired again and for all bullet evidence to be re-examined by a panel of seven firearm experts. After careful analysis, the panel reached a collective conclusion. None of its members could confirm the testimony claiming that three bullets, including the one extracted from Kennedy's neck, could be linked to Sir Han's gun. 
The panel was unable to match the bullets they fired from Sirhan's Ivor Johnson H53725 revolver or any of the victim's bullets with the original test bullets allegedly fired on June 6 of 1968. As you talked about earlier, whether these all came from his weapon, most of these shots didn't come from his weapon. So how many of them did? Looking at it, you can see that most of these rounds were shot from behind him. So all the rounds that were pulled from somebody's leg or somebody's buttocks, one of the one of the uh, the reporters was shot in the butt, in the buttocks. All these rounds that they pulled out and all the rounds that they found, none of them belonged to his weapon. So Patsy did not shoot any rounds, taking me back to like. You know, the, the 10 rounds, somebody behind. But again, shots from the front. You can't, you cannot ignore the fact that there were shots taken from the front. So he mm. could have he fired off two or three of the shots. It could have been two or three, but they're claiming that he shot all eight. But it's impossible with the reconstruction, with the way that they're uh, playing it out. Again, even if he took the reconstruction out of it and just looked at the panel of experts examining the rounds shot from his weapon, they don't match. So automatically, Saran's weapon was not the one that was taking the shots from behind. Physically and evidentially, it does not make sense. No, it doesn't. It, it doesn't at all. It's wild because I never really looked at it too much this assassination everybody focuses on jfk you know but this is just as squirrely as jfk just as squirrely if not squirrelier honestly because it was in an enclosed space like very enclosed space that's what makes it super weird because there was more people in texas when jfk was killed but there's also just the vicinity of people also getting hit i mean people were hit in a crossfire that's essentially what it was there's no denying that there's at least another person there with a gun there had yeah. to have been or yeah. you know the, the walls and pots and pans in that kitchen are not shooting people paul schrade was the one that got hit in the forehead that mm-hmm. was behind kennedy right correct is it possible that whoever was hit behind him those were the shots that ricocheted because Schrade was, it was in an upward trajectory. I doubt the assassin was on the floor in between no. this dude's legs. It had, to, it had to be some sort of ricochet from him. But also, how do you shoot a forward shot, have that ricochet, and then come back? Well, r- ricochet is a nasty beast. It's hard to understand how that shit works. I mean, strange things happen. And here's the other thing. If you're also incorporating the eyewitness accounts, Saran fired his weapon. He's in front. He fired that weapon. That's where it becomes a little weird is that if he's in front and he's firing the weapon, it's a weird positioning thing. 
And then you're taking testimony from people who were just involved in like this wild traumatic thing. Oh, well, I don't know. I may have heard that shot. It may have come from in front of him. It may come from behind him. I don't know where he was standing. He might have been to the left or might have been to the right. It's a big game of telephone. And then you inject this massive traumatic event into it. And it's it's a mess. Even if he shot all eight shots, it does not explain the rear wounds. Again, unless the positioning of Saran was completely wrong from every eyewitness. How many people were in the kitchen? There's a lot. Quite a bit of people. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't only like the cooks and the waiters. Obviously, there's yeah, the workers yeah. of the hotel that are there. But also remember, this was a shortcut from I think it was a ballroom or something where he was giving this speech. And they were cutting through the alleyway of the kitchen to get to the press room. That's why he's with a bunch of reporters. He's with, you know, a bunch of other people. They're cutting through essentially as a shortcut through the kitchen to get to the press room, which is a completely separate room. There's police, bodyguards, other politicians, you said press. I mean, there's just a grip of people and then just the hotel employees themselves. But was it so many people that a couple of three letter agencies and or the mob couldn't have enticed them to say X, Y, Z? That's plausible. Opposing what actually happened. It's all very possible. Keep in mind, he was also giving a speech to a ballroom full of people. There's even more people. There's people that were waiting in the press room. There's people that he was giving the speech to. I mean, we're talking like hundreds of people at this point. Who really knows if at the back of this entourage, somebody was, you know, blending in, walking through, took the shots and then ran the other fucking way. We don't know. Messy. Messy. Let's push forward and we'll see. Uh. We'll see what else we get into here. After these findings, the media newspapers would go on to say the opposite of what the panel's findings were. Notoriously, the LA Times had published headlines stating, quote, panel of seven firearm experts claim no second shooter, end quote. Lowell Bradford, one of the experts in an effort to combat the misinformation, went on to be quoted as saying, quote, the news media is misinterpreting the panel's findings. The examiners found no evidence of Saran's gun firing of any bullets found at the crime scene. End quote. Wait, none of the bullets. Of the eight rounds that were collected, none of those rounds came from Saran's weapon. As I was looking into this, I kept thinking to myself, is it possible that Saran, in the vein of what Frank is saying, is a patsy, and he was given a weapon that was full of blanks. Also possible. So sleight of hand, you have a guy that's just firing shots off in front of you, boom, 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 and meanwhile, just some squirrely motherfucker comes up and unloads behind him. Just a thought that I had, I was like, hey, if this guy's, you know, maybe, who knows, if they're not picking up his rounds... It's not out of the realm of possibility with the chaos going on that two other people, one other person could have been involved and it could have been a coordinated event and they got away. They never found the ballistics of some other weapon, but it it is ever more peculiar knowing that none of the rounds could have come from that gun that he was holding. And he definitely fired that weapon. Yeah, without a doubt, he fired that Mm -hmm. weapon. 
1976 Freedom of Information request, it was confirmed by FBI investigators that there were at least 12 bullets recovered from the hotel kitchen. No official report mentioned this discrepancy. Another part of this story still remains one of the biggest and unanswered questions. Who was the woman in the polka dot dress? Now, we haven't mentioned her yet, but she plays a big part in this. Several witnesses in different locations throughout the hotel, and all unrelated to one another, claim to have witnessed a woman with a rather distinct, quote, pudgy nose, a shapely figure, dark hair, and wearing a white dress with either black or navy-colored polka dots. Oh no, not the 2014 illusion. Is it white and <laughs> white and gold or white and blue? I, I just think a lot of people are colorblind. <laughs> Probably. Sandra Serrano was sitting in the exit stairway of the ambassador when the aforementioned woman and two men went past her on the stairs. A short time later, the woman and one of the men would run back down the stairs as the woman was shouting, We shot him! We shot him! When Serrano asked her who, the woman replied, Senator Kennedy. The second man in the group would later be identified by Sandra as Serran. Richard Houston, who was in the pantry at the time of the shooting, witnessed the woman in the polka dot dress, running away from the scene and shouting, We killed him! Multiple other accounts of the woman in the polka dot dress and the second man exist. Throughout the years, these statements and reports have been altered to omit the existence of the couple or to suggest they were not involved in any way. Other accounts place Saran and the woman at other events leading up to the shooting. Mmm, staking out their, uh, mm, mm, just mm. lurking their prey. Yeah. Keep in mind, there's also another part to this. So during his speech, his acceptance speech after winning this primary, there were people that were out front of the hotel and in the lobby of the hotel protesting Kennedy. At one point, they were saying that people were handing out bumper stickers alluding to killing Kennedy or killing Robert Kennedy. Something about like the next Kennedy to be killed or something along those lines. There were people, for as much as there were a lot of supporters that he had, there were also a lot that were against him. And as big of a win as it was for him to win the California primary in North Dakota, he was also losing most of the presidential race already. But this was one of the biggest turning points right there. Honestly, part of me, and this is in my opinion, by no means is it factually based, but part of me thinks that the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. actually garnered him a lot of favor when it came down to voting because of his reaction to that entire thing with him doing kind of the press junket of it all, going to all these different events that were commemorating and in memoriam of Dr. King. So I think he, he gained a lot of traction because of that assassination, and that ultimately helped him with winning primaries after that. William Schneid, an officer for Pomona Police Department, witnessed a man and woman crossing over a brick casing outside of Robbie's restaurant in Pomona on May 20th of 1968 at an RFK fundraising event. 
He described the man as Mexican with curly hair accompanied by a woman with a shapely figure and dark hair. When Officer Schneid gave his account to the FBI stating that the male had a likeness to Saran, the report read differently. The official FBI summary read, quote, He did not feel the man observed by him would have been Saran Saran. And that report right there is kind of the turning point of where you start to see that this is something bigger than the LAPD cover-up. Other reports from witnesses were altered or coerced to be changed by FBI and LAPD. Albert LeBeau, a night manager for Robbie's Restaurant, also claimed to have seen the couple at the event on the 20th. He also stated the likeness the male had to Saran. In a June 26th interview by the LAPD, LeBeau's testimony was changed. No recordings or official report of the interview exists. The one thing that remained in the police summary was one interaction between LeBeau and an officer, Thompson. It reads, quote, Just before the end of the interview, LeBeau was asked if he could swear under oath that the individual he saw was Saran. LeBeau claimed he could not, end quote. There is nothing to indicate LeBeau had actually ever said this or that this interview actually ever occurred. Shady business. Mm-hmm. Very shady. Wasn't Saran Palestinian, though? Yeah, but you also got to think. It's the 60s. You're in California. Yeah, and... he could have been mistaken for not <laughs> Palestinian. Yeah, a Palestinian has the same kind of uh, skin color as Whoa, a possible hey. Mexican. Hey, I'm, saying, hey. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. It's a little tan. We don't tan. see color. <laughs> we don't see color around here. Larry Arnaud. A gun shop employee recounts even selling the ammunition to the three suspects on June 1st of 1968. He states that three individuals came into the shop and purchased 22 caliber ammunition. After a lie detector test and his statement, Lieutenant Enrique Hernandez of the LAPD told Arnaud that, quote, he must be confused about the incident, end quote. Dude, this just screams foul play. Screams it. In Ted Karak's documentary film, The Second Gun, Ben Herrick, the gun shop owner, states, quote, The sales slip definitely proves that he was telling the truth. Karak had been in the hotel pantry the night of the assassination. His documentary garnered awards and eventually was bought by Warner Brothers Studios. The studio then suppressed it and never showed it again. Beautiful. So Warner Brothers put it in their black vault. Yeah. Never to be released. Wow. Karak received multiple death threats and even had the film stolen from him at gunpoint with the assailant saying, quote, you aren't going to show this film anymore. In another instance, he was set to show the film at the Academy of Forensic Sciences when oil was poured on the film, followed by a phone call that night saying, quote, this time it was the film. Next time it will be you, end quote. He won awards for that documentary, talking about the second gun in the RFK assassination. Is it like gone? Like we can't even watch oh, it? Oh yeah, it's it's gone. There's no way to find it. Wonderful. Like it stated, you know, Warner Brothers got it and they were like, ah, we're not going to show this anymore. We're not going to put this with the moon shit over here. <laughs> now this brings us to the other possibilities and conspiracies of the event. 
One witness was quoted as saying that they saw a security guard returning fire at Saran in the pantry that evening. This could account for the other bullets found at the scene. But if this were the case, why all the suppression of the evidence and report from the witnesses? And, you know, like telling filmmakers you're going to die for mm. making things about this. Mm -hmm. It has some credibility. Obviously, if there's a security guard that has a weapon, if he's behind RFK, he's shooting back at Saran. But I don't know how likely it is. And again, why suppress it? Maybe it's just like we can't we can't let people know that the security guard really was trying to help RFK, but inadvertently killed him or shot the dude in the head behind you know, you'd have to imagine that like the security guard pulls his weapon from his holster and as he's coming up, he just like pulls the trigger and pops one off behind RFK's head. And then again was like, Oh, sorry. And then brings the gun back around and shoots him in the back again. Like a comedic scene going on. It's far-fetched. It's far-fetched. That leaves the question, could Saran have been a victim of a Manchurian candidate situation? He recounts not remembering the events of that night and that he only remembers shooting targets for practice. Well, little MK Ultra, little mind control brainwashing. This is a common recount of a person programmed for assassinations, dissociating the act of killing by having the assassin imagine he is only shooting targets. That's some heavy, heavy MK Ultra, full yes. tripped out. Yeah, that's some mind control shit. And that doesn't even take away the fact that they might have been blanks. He might have thought that he was shooting at targets, but there mm -hmm. was no projectile. Another possibility is a cover-up and planning of the murder of Senator Kennedy by the LAPD and FBI. Why would law enforcement want RFK dead, though? He was very outspoken about equality and garnered trust in the minority and poor communities. This may have angered some higher-ups within the force. It's possible. Fucking up their quota. Fucking up their quota, getting a little power within that community. I hate to say it, and I don't hate to say it, but like the poor and minority communities have a lot of power if they know how to organize and they have kind of a figurehead leading them. That's why if you look throughout history, people that have been assassinated were a lot of times like ahead of these communities. You have Martin Luther King, you have JFK, RFK, you have uh, John Lennon. The list goes on of people that were very outspoken for these poor and downtrodden communities, and they were the voice for them. And then ultimately, they get assassinated. It's weird. It's just weird. It definitely points to an agenda of some sort. There is also the behind-the-scenes involvement of former CIA assets. Ooh. Eugene McCarthy and Hubert Humphreys were running a presidential bid against Robert. They surrounded themselves in their campaigns with former CIA agents, including James Woldsley, who would eventually become CIA director under Big Bad Bill Clinton. Not to mention Thomas Finney, who was a top aide to Humphreys. Could McCarthy and Humphreys have worked together in coalition with the CIA to possibly get rid of Robert Kennedy? 
the motive behind the assassination was that Saran Saran was supposedly angered by Kennedy selling bomber jets to Israel. There is no evidence to suggest that this is factual. Acquaintances of Saran's would come forward after the murder and claim that he had expressed no ill will towards Kennedy prior. Yeah, I doubt Kennedy at that time, RFK, was selling bomber jets to Israel. He was brokering deals for Mm. weapons for Israel. Our relationship as a country with Israel is quite extensive. Oh, yeah. Quite extensive. Huh. And that would bring into question, you know, oh, Saran is a Palestinian, so that obviously makes sense. He was the perfect patsy. You get Saran. Oh, he's Palestinian. He hates that RFK was doing this stuff with Israel. It's like a too perfect scenario for setting him up to fall. Wild stuff, man. I'm telling you. What What else did... Um did Saran have going on in his life at that time? Like, where was he at? I didn't dive too much into Saran, honestly, into his, uh, his personal life, but there were some weird things. He did have some weird things going on with him as we'll get into in a minute. But the McCarthy and Humphreys thing is interesting because McCarthy and Humphreys were both in the boys club with CIA members and CIA officers and extended alphabet boy groups. They were well known and they were friends with a lot of these people and they had a lot of relationships with these people, whereas RFK did not. RFK was very much shunned by the CIA, most likely probably because of his brother and other things. And also the same with the FBI as he got into his political positions and his attorney general positions and swayed the way of what they were doing as the status quo away from that onto more pressing things. He was not a very well-liked man within those circles. He uh, wanted to be a jockey. I remember back in the 60s when I was riding a horse back in Brookline. A horse jockey. A horse jockey. So he was a small man. Oh, wait. I remember back in Brookline when I wanted to be a DJ at the local local radio station. Wanted to be a dish jockey. <laughs> He's actually in the prison right down the street here. Saran? Saran? Yeah. Yeah. Dude, pay him a visit with a GoPro. First vlog. Vlog it, baby. (laughs) Yeah, he's at Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego. Dave, break him out and find out the truth. I'm not fucking breaking him out. (laughs) Why not? old man. He is an old man. He is an old man. He's not going to run very fast. You're going to have to carry him. Put him in a wheelchair and just push him. A notebook of Saran's would be found with the quote, pay to the order of Saran Saran many times and multiple mentions of the Illuminati and the Boston Strangler. So a very interesting notebook by Saran. A lot of weird stuff written in there. Pay to the order of Saran Saran. I wonder what that's all about. I kept wondering and I kept trying to dig into that and into what that might have meant. But it it apparently appeared like hundreds of times throughout this man's notebook. It was probably him trying to manifest money of some way. (laughs) Yeah, Saran's really a hippie. Saran Saran would go on to be convicted of murder in the first degree and be sentenced to life in prison. He was 24 at the time. 
In 2021, after years of being denied, he was granted recommendation of parole by the California Parole Board. In 2023, Governor Gavin Newsom denied that request. So that's it. Big bad, the Fuhrer Newsom said nine. I'm surprised. Don't they like let people out for murder like six days afterwards in California? <laughs> they don't even arrest them anymore. That's for new uh Oh, for new, new murders. New oh, murders. he's not getting grandfathered in <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, he's getting grandfathered into prison. <laughs> I'm not saying that it would go the same way, but if it were these terms and he did what he did allegedly, not in 1968, but in uh, 2023, they might let him out. Nice. nice. The same day. Yeah. Same, same day. Imagine you can, you should see the laundry list of crimes in California. Now you can commit oh, yeah. and still get let out the same day. It's yeah. very crazy. Before we get too far away from this uh, and kind of wrap this up, I just want to note that the woman in the polka dot dress was that whole part of this story for our listeners was scaled down a lot. Her and the third person, the other male that was seen on site during the assassination, they were seen by a lot of witnesses, a lot of people. So it wasn't just like one or two people. It was a lot of people saw them and claimed that they were there. So it makes it even more of a head scratcher that law enforcement would go to say like, oh, they were never there. They're not real. Like all these people are making this up or they weren't involved. They were just carefree couple having fun at an assassination is very weird. The woman in the polka dot dress is still like a huge thing. All right, guys. We have read it this episode, and it's a good one. I love this user's name, Pasta Mac. Makes me so hungry. Fun fact, John Frankenheimer, the director of The Manchurian Candidate, which was a movie about hypnotically programmed assassination of a U.S. president, he held a dinner party in California with Robert F. Kennedy, Roman Polanski, and Sharon Tate. Kennedy had just won the Democratic presidential nomination and would be murdered the next day. Roman Polanski is now a fugitive from the U.S. criminal justice system, and Sharon Tate was murdered in 1969. Hmm, 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 hmm. I wonder, I wonder. Thank you, uh, Pasta But Roman Polanski is running from the U.S. because he likes to have sex with underage girls. Yeah, that too. Creep. All right, boys. Let's say we get into our final thoughts on the RFK assassination. Declassified Dave. What you got, homie? Like his brother, I think there were multiple people involved in this. It's just too messy. I think that, like you stated before, where he was a part of all these communities trying to help uh, and just doing things against what these... ABC shadow governments, whatever the narrative, whatever is going on behind the scenes. Ultimately, they don't want that. And it's been seen a few times, and especially with just that family. It's either that or the mob, you know, like we said with JFK. It's the only real possibility for me is that it was well coordinated no matter who it was. And it wasn't just Saran Saran or him at all because of the ballistics we found out. This one's a weird one, but we'll we'll probably never know their true magic of the bullets. 
I will agree that this one is squirrely. Researching it and looking into it, I dove deep into it for a long time and it just struck me as wild. There's so much to it and there's so many different layers to it and there's so many different witnesses and witness accounts. There are also accounts uh, we didn't really get into, but there's accounts of witnesses that were intimidated by police, witnesses that were essentially told to back out of their testimony or they would face certain consequences. There's some very weird stuff here and it all leads to a massive, massive cover-up and just corruption, just crazy, crazy corruption. I personally think that it was something coordinated between these other presidential uh, candidates and the Alphabet Boys. Because if you really look at it, I don't know that the mafia would have pulled in a random Palestinian kid to go and take out the president. I think that they would have pushed somebody either that they know or somebody within the family or something like that. They would have kept that close to the chest. But as far as the CIA and FBI, I definitely think that's something that they would do. If it's an MK Ultra or Manchurian candidate kind of setup. It sucks. It sucks. Saran over the years has changed his story a lot. He has said there, there's an interesting part uh, also within the ballistics and in the, into the investigation where they had went into his car and they found spent rounds. And this brings back that wooden divider. They found spent rounds in the car that had wood splinters in them. And when he was later questioned about it, he he essentially was just like, why would I do that? Like, why would I incriminate myself? Why, why would I shoot into a piece of wood and then take those rounds out and then put them into my car? And later on, it would be proven that the rounds that were in the car were actually shot from the weapon that he had. It's a little weird. I don't know. It's a weird setup. There's a lot of, lot of mystery and suspicious evidence to this whole thing. So I'm going to stick with the Alphabet Boys because they would be the ones to pull it off and the LAPD would be the ones to be terrible liars. Slick, Frank Sanders, what do you got for me? It's 1968 and you're in a kitchenette. <laughs> Frog's final thought. Yeah, it goes without saying. CIA, FBI, 100% involved. I'm not sure how involved the mob was in this assassination. While RFK was definitely ruffling their feathers with his uh, fast-moving initiatives, I, I don't think they played a huge role in this. What's frustrating to me is the lack of hard evidence Besides the bullets, were there eight, were there 10, were there 12? It doesn't really matter. Pretty much all we're working with here is the bullets. And with that being said, it's hard to pinpoint how many shooters there were and where they were located. If you look at diagrams of that kitchen, it's possible for there to have been one shooter, two shooters, three shooters. It, it could have been 10 and they all fired one shot. While that's unlikely, it's, it's possible. When it comes to the girl in the polka dot dress and her trio, again, like where's the evidence? Where's the pictures of these people? Maybe one 
and that could have been any lady in a polka dot dress anywhere at any of these events. I'm just not sure. I'm unsatisfied with the evidence that supports our theory, despite the fact that I do believe that Saran Saran was a patsy. With no doubt in my heart do I think that he shot all eight of his rounds, or even ten, if that's what he had. All of the eyewitness testimonies, the receipts at the gun shop, I think that a lot of that could have been fabricated to hide whatever it really was that went down that night in that kitchen. All right, hushlings. That's going to do it for this debriefing on RFK. What'd you think? Is there anything that we should have mentioned? Anything that we missed? Uh, Did we miss the shot? Did we fire one too many bullets? Not enough. Reach out to us, as always. Email us, contact at hushhushsociety.com. Don't forget to join us for our next debriefing, Mission 77, where we fly into space on the SS Hush and explore what the Black Knight satellite could be. And that'll be Monday, July 3rd. And for our patrons in the month of July, we're going to give you a sneak peek into your life after martial law is declared when you'll be living in a FEMA camp. We're going to let you know the ins and outs of FEMA camp life and how that's going to be looking. That will be July 20th coming to you soon. Thanks for joining the Hush Hush Society for another debriefing. I'm Declassified Dave. And I'm Mr. Mike. And I'm Sick Frank Sanders. Until our next debriefing, remember, the best kept secrets are hidden in plain sight.